The gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, February 11th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Three college students in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, were killed yesterday. All were promising young people. All were shot to death. All were Muslim. The fact is, the police are looking into the motives of the shooter, who they have in custody. He and the victims were said to have argued about a parking space. There will be an investigation. If it was a crime motivated by anti-Muslim animus, authorities will want to know because under North Carolina law, the killer could face extra penalties. Now, it is true that when Muslims are perpetrators of crime, the media often jump to the conclusion that the motivation is religion. So in this case, activists on social media took up this story in order to shame the media for not jumping to conclusions. Mona Chalabi, who writes for 538, and sometimes we're both interviewed one right before the other on Rachel Martin's NPR show, respect her work, but she tweeted, three Muslim students shot to death, when can we start talking about Islamophobia? I would suggest the answer is when we confirm that Islamophobia was at play. When Major Nidal Hassan was revealed to be the killer of 13 people in Fort Hood, Texas, the fact that he is Muslim was immediately seized upon in some quarters to call it a terrorist attack, but not by responsible media. And it seems that Hassan was indeed driven by a lot of things, but among them a twisted interpretation of Islam. We, of course, demand that the media is both careful and correct, but also immediate and conclusive, even in the absence of evidence. So long, I guess, as it's the conclusion that we want. So on the show today, I will spiel about a guy getting pilloried because he wasn't careful and correct and his lying New Jersey pal. But first, and but only, an interview with a man who wanted to be a millionaire. Just millionaire didn't want that to happen. A week ago, this was Justin Peters, identified as a journalist, as he attempted to puzzle out a question on the syndicated game show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Drinking alcohol is a celebratory thing for some people. As a, as a rip beer drinker myself, you know, it's not really, who am I kidding? I drink far too much. Um, <laughs> um, newsflash. Justin had just been asked, Drinking alcohol in the British House of Commons is strictly forbidden at times, with the single exception of a lawmaker doing what? Peters immediately ruled out two of the answers, declaring war and taking the oath of office. Now it was between passing a budget and crowning a royal. It's B. It is B. It has to be B. It's the only one that makes it remotely make sense. Are you sure? No, of course I'm not sure. This question, worth half a million dollars, was the game's penultimate question. If he got it right, he would have the chance for the million-dollar question. If he got it wrong, he'd go home with $25,000. But the more likely choice, if he didn't know the right answer, and what has happened to most of the people who stare at a half-million-dollar question and aren't absolutely sure of the answer, is this. They say, I'm not sure. And they happily gleefully take the $250,000 they've already accumulated. 
In fact, as Justin was puzzling out this question, he didn't know this, but the last player who had taken a shot at the half-million-dollar question and gotten it wrong, that was in 2013. Before that, 2004. So since the syndicated version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire started, there have been fewer half-a-million-dollar losers than there have been women on the Supreme Court. But we're not talking about women on the Supreme Court. We're talking parliament and booze. And here's what Justin was thinking. Yeah, why not? (laughs) Right? Um, You're like, no, not right. You idiot. Speak. Crowning a royal. Let's make this a game, Carrie. Final answer. Justin, I am so sorry. The answer is D. Justin Peters is a journalist. In fact, he's a writer for Slate, and he wrote about his experience in an article very much worth reading called I Wanted to Be a Millionaire, How Failing Colossally on a Game Show Changed My Life for the Better. Hey, Justin. Hey, Mike. So in that moment that we just heard, was there anything going on even that you weren't articulating? And the thing that kills me is I didn't even stop to consider passing a budget. You know, it seemed to me like such a uh, blah and sort of random like answer. And that should have been the sign to me that it was the uh, it was the right one. But I just completely passed over that. And I was thinking, yeah, crowding a royal. Well, there's a brand of, you know, Canadian whiskey called Crown Royal. You know, that must uh, that must be the case. It's got to be for a reason. It's got to be, right? Um <laughs> So I watched my episodes in this bar on uh, 8th Avenue and 29th Street. Surrounded by loved ones? Yeah, no, no, uh, surrounded by a few friends and a bunch of alcoholics. And there was some overlap. Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) But immediately after I answered that question wrong on TV and they, like, cut the commercial, the door of the bar opens and a guy comes in with a huge delivery of Crown Royal. (sighs) creepiest thing that's ever happened to me like in my life is as if like someone had hired like this guy to like uh come in and uh just hit the nail right on the head like that mm-hmm. it was funny the bartender gave me a uh, one of those purple crown royal bags to take home as a souvenir <laughs> does this fit over my right face can i use this can as I? a noose <laughs> Have you watched any of the other ones, how they made their decisions? Have you gotten in touch with any of them or I found have. out? Yeah, tell I me have. about what yeah. you found out. A lot of these people sort of went into it, uh, and I think they were feeling the same things that I was feeling. They're like, you know, it's been an easy ride so far. I'm feeling sort of um, flush with, like, the moment, and I'm going to roll it because I've been rolling it, you know, up to now. It's worked. <laughs> Actually, last night I was, you know, uh, bantering on Twitter with this dude named Rudy Reber who back in 2000 when the show was on ABC like five nights a week and 30 million people were watching it, got to the $500,000 question, phoned a friend. The friend told him, yep, I know the answer. I'm positive. He was wrong. He lost uh, the money. And like this guy became like a national like sensation and made national headlines. You know, these days, no one watches who wants to be a millionaire. So, you know, my infamy has been much less infamous. It's a niche. It's, niche it's a niche for me. Yeah. Niche for me. <laughs> Did, but by the way, is Rudy still friends with that friend? Which he is, is. sure the number one question he, he gets. He is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> which is sort of interesting. As you look back at the experience 
do you think that maybe no matter what answer you would have chosen, you would you would have been a little bit overconfident of? Were you in a state where you were convincing yourself that even if you were watching at home and you admitted to yourself, I'm about 55% sure, there in the studio, you convince yourself you're 85% sure of an answer? Yes, for sure. Well, that's what I did in the last question. Yeah. I mean, looking back on it, you know, I was probably only 51% sure yeah. of that, but it felt right. And since other questions I had answered had felt right and they had been right, then I'm like, yep, you know, fortune smiles on the brave. Yeah. You know? Well, that's true. That's true. Trust your experience. Um, that People say, you know, trust your first gut instinct. It's usually right. But do you think that how Millionaire does it with talking out the answer worked against you? In other words, you talked yourself into not just the answer, but going for it. Uh, no, to the contrary. I think I didn't talk it out enough. I was clearly like just really excited to be on television and sort of like milking the moment of, you know, being on the verge of playing for a million dollars. And if I had sort of refrained from treating it like a vaudeville show a little bit and actually taken the time to talk through the answer one or two more times, because they give you unlimited amount of time when yeah. you get up to that level as long as you're talking it through. I feel confident I would have realized that the uh, House of Commons has nothing to do with uh, crowning a royal if I had just sort of verbalized the options and the question. Uh, so there was somewhere in your intellect was, the, was that fact, like the House of Commons is founded in opposition to royalty. Exactly. So, yeah. I, I knew it was the Archbishop of Canterbury who um, crowns a monarch. And driving home after the show, I was mostly pissed that I hadn't figured that out in the moment. But... It's a super, like, stressful moment. You know, I can't beat myself up about it too much. When all the producers said you were the best contestant we've had, you're one of the best contestants we had, Constellation or the Shiv going in a little bit deeper? A little bit of both. A little bit of both. I mean, they thought I was a great contestant because I had given them uh, drama that they could cut into a promo and, uh, you know, air during sweeps, which is what they did. And yeah, like, I take it as pride. It is a as a point of pride that I gave them an episode and a half of good television. There are plenty of actual TV actors who don't make episodes and a half of good television in their entire career. Some would argue it's a small wonder, an <laughs> entire series that didn't. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. They got to add to you more than they get out of even the people they give a million to. So some people, they're like, oh, we gave him a million dollars. I guess it was worth it. It's really the show that made the guy. You made the show. You're so much more valuable to them than all these millionaires they've crowned. Uh, it's actually funny. I don't think I put this in my piece, but walking off stage like immediately after I had lost, I said a really pathetic thing. I went up to one of the producers. I'm like, listen. If you ever do one of those shows where you invite old contestants back to play again, please ask me to come uh, and I'll do it. And they gave me sort of a look like, okay, if we do that, which we won't, like, <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> that was the thing. They make it clear on Jeopardy. You know, once you lose, you can never play again. We are, you, there is only one category, maybe two category of people that could never be on Jeopardy, people directly related to the Jeopardy staff and people who've ever been on Jeopardy, not the Art Fleming version. By the way, if you were on the Regis version, can you ever be on uh, this version? I don't know. That's a good if question. If they syndicate it without Terry Crews, you know, sometimes it goes from syndicator to syndicator. Yeah, I, I, I know it's some, like, 
I know, like, with Jeopardy, you know, once Trebek leaves, then, like, everyone who's played under him is apparently fair game again. Yeah, just like when Jesus died, all the souls ascended to heaven. That's what we're waiting for. <laughs> exactly. Pretty much the crucifixion of Alex Trebek. So after th- there was a lag between your appearance and when it actually aired and a little bit of a lag between when it aired and when the piece posted, were you in a little bit of a funk after the show, after the experience actually happened? Yeah, that that's sort of an understatement. I felt worse than I'd ever felt in my life. Yeah. Uh, and it was one of those things that I don't know at the time. I was like, I don't know how I'm ever going to like get past this I still feel terrible about it sometimes, you know. It's the sort of thing where every now and then I'll wake up in the middle of the night and just start groaning because, like, that's a lot of money. You know, I have had years, like, where, like, I've, like, earned under the poverty line. You know, like, there are times in my life where I would have had to work, like, 12 years straight to make, like, that much uh, money. But I eventually, you know, decided, Mike, that, you know, I had to own this failure or else it was going to own me. And that's no way to live. I had to find, you know, something meaningful in the fact that I went for it and lost. Uh, and what I ultimately decided, and it wasn't, it was a conscious decision, you know, a rationalization in a sense. What I decided is that, you know, I need to derive value from th- discovering this about myself, that I have the guts, you know, to make a decision and sort of risk something that other people, like, wouldn't have risked. I... I could tell when I was in that moment uh, about to answer the show, everyone in the studio wanted me to do it. Yeah. No one would have done it themselves. Everybody else would have walked. And like, what does that say about me? You know, what does that say about me? And what does that say going forward that now that I have risked it and failed and hit bottom, you know, I can't imagine a point in my life where I would feel worse or feel more sort of stupid or humiliated than after that point, you know, where I just sort of walked away due to my own sort of hubris and, you know, arrogance. Well, there's an analogy to, as you write in the piece, to your real life where you you have success. You're one of the best writers here at Slate. Everything you write is interesting and you do improv comedy and within the world of improv comedy, you're going gangbusters within the world of actual paid entertainment. <laughs> I don't know. But... You know, you were saying that you were happy with your level of success, say, in improv comedy, but then looking back on this because of the millionaire experience, you realize some of that may be in the realm of rationalization, not going for it more. Well, you know what I realized, Mike, uh, is that I've had an interesting career and an interesting life. You know, like the choice to be a journalist is the sort of thing that would be super risky for a lot of people. And it certainly felt risky at times because it's hard to earn a steady living in uh, industry that seems to be on the decline. You know, the improv and sketch stuff that I've done in the city, you know, that's sort of like a risky thing too in a lot of ways because, you know, it can be stressful to sort of put yourself out there in front of like an audience, however small. But what I realized is that the shots that I had been taking were the shots I knew it could make yeah. throughout my life, right? I know I'm a great writer. I know I'm a good reporter. Choosing to be a journalist and, you know, to make this my career was not a risk. It's something I knew I would succeed at if, you know, I stuck with it long enough and didn't implode. Uh, you know, doing sort of uh, improv in the city, that's something I know I can succeed at. Right. You know? And so how is it going to translate into how you change your approach to journalism, improv, or anything else? I'm still figuring that out in a lot of ways, you know. Um, I mean, one thing that I have done 
is I booked a West Coast tour for my improv duo. We're leaving on Wednesday, actually. We'll be out there for like a week and a half. This is something I never would have done before being on the show because we will likely lose a lot of money and play in front of audiences in like the single uh, digits. Yep. Uh, audiences that don't know you. Now that the bill, you, you got a brand, brand name recognition in the improv community here in New York. Not true for LA. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. But it's something that sounded like fun. You know, it's something that not just sounded like fun, sounded like the sort of thing that uh, would be a challenge. You know, the sort of thing that I wasn't sure. I'm still not sure how it's going to go, but it could go great. And I'm willing to risk it not going great in order to sort of chance it going great. Justin Peters is a $25,000 winner on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, a writer for Slate Magazine, and especially to those people listening on the West Coast, a member of the improv duo from Justin to Kelly coming to a town near you. (laughs) That's right. We'll be in uh, L.A., in Orange County, in San Diego, uh, Phoenix, and Las Vegas. Uh, We have absolutely nothing to do with that dumb American Idol movie. But if you guys insist, we can try to sort of recite some dialogue. I've never actually seen it, but I'll watch it if that's what the public requires. Also, very smart to name your improv duo after something that's all but ungoogleable. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so try to check out Google for tour dates. They might not be forthcoming. Justin Peters, thank you so much. Thanks, Mike. That's right, Al. You lost. And let me tell you what you didn't win. A 20-volume set of the Encyclopedia International. A case of Colonel Wax and a year's supply of rice. I would like to put my stamp of approval on something. I'd like to, but stamps so often get my disapproval. It's just getting to the post office. Schlepping there. Traipsing there? No trudging there. And then when you are there, there's a little bit of an internal trudge. Is it that I don't like the post office? No, people. It's that I do. I love it so much. I want to free up the post office of all the people who have all these packages, small business men and women. I mean, they might be large. They loom large in our national conversation. But man, does spending time at the post office lay them low. So I give them and you and all of us who want the lines to go quicker, I give you stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right at your desk with your own computer and printer. And you get special discounts you can't find at the post office. Plus, it's more powerful than a postage meter. For just a fraction of the cost, you could save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. And you'll avoid trips to the post office. And everyone else at the post office will avoid you. Right now, use the promo code THEGIST for a special offer. It's a no-risk trial. It's $110 bonus offer. They'll give you a digital scale. They'll give you up to $55 of free postage. So go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's stamps.com. Enter the gist. And now the spiel. Garden State Misstaters. A white man in his 50s from New Jersey who faked news is being pilloried for betraying the audience by making us question our institutions and ask, who can we really trust? A white man in his 50s from New Jersey who faked news is being celebrated for delighting the audience and making us question our institutions and ask, who can we really trust? The difference between Brian Williams and Jon Stewart is the difference between carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide. We had two very different contracts with these two men in suits, sitting at desks, reading the news. One of them is a satirist, the other a fatherly figure with an old media, hell, 
old transportation title, Anchor. And from him, we want sobriety. These guys who played, at least on air, a version of Friends had such similar backgrounds. Jersey upbringing, sports in high school, great communicators. Stewart, even when he was a stand-up, was at his best when riffing off of nonfiction. Williams, a truly witty man, an SNL host, reportedly sought out Jay Leno's old job when he left The Tonight Show. He could have been locked into the stuffiest straitjacket in America, but he was clearly eager to bust out and be funny. And I reject, by the way, the contention that sense of humor is the antithesis of serious or believable. Lincoln, Kennedy, Churchill, great wits all. And even newsmen can be funny without losing their gravitas. Walter Cronkite did a guest spot on the Mary Tyler Moore Show. For all the tisking this week about how Cronkite wouldn't have hosted Saturday Night Live, well, no, you're right, he was on CBS. Edwin Newman, esteemed NBC newsman, did host Saturday Night Live. Brian Williams was extremely articulate, and that was a key to his appeal and maybe his undoing. I have heard it said in these last few days that he wasn't so much a journalist as he was a celebrity. One supposed to be a virtuous pursuit and the other term is dismissive. But think of the overlap. A journalist is a storyteller, at his best a communicator. Elements of charisma and a feel for the dramatic play into this. Knowing how to tell an anecdote, maybe even spin a yarn, helped burnish the Williams brand. To the point where if Scott Pelley were caught in a lie, it would be more confusing, but less of a national scandal. In fact, right now, under our noses, there is a similar charade being perpetrated. Apparently, some guy named David Muir is claiming to be the anchor of ABC World News Tonight, and no one is even fact-checking that claim. So I have only a few insights to add to the ample coverage of the Williams story. It is strange how news about journalists doesn't go undercovered. The first is to note that in my experience, the closer a news story adheres to the rules of narrative, the more you should be suspicious that the events actually transpired as described. I am not just talking about schlocky, obviously manipulative, quote-unquote, journalism. I'm talking about the best journalism. I'm talking about works that have won Pulitzers, the radio shows you love, the nonfiction authors who are the most acclaimed. They're not lying, but there is a shading, a leaving out of complicating details, a landing on salient points in a way that is satisfying to our species' desire for linear tales, but antithetical to the messiness of the world. And secondly, it doesn't surprise me that at the center of this tale was a war zone exaggeration, or at least exaggeration. I'm frequently on the third floor of 30 Rock, home of the studios of NBC News. You step off the elevator and there is a glass case telling the story of war correspondents. Not correspondents who covered the White House or local disasters, wars. There are many pictures of Brian Williams in flak jackets and standing in dusty foreign fields. War correspondent was a gap in Williams' resume before he became an anchor, so it doesn't surprise me that he'd fill in this gap with such, let's say, abandon. The funny thing about all of this to me is that Anchorman is the ultimate position of illusory importance. When they're on the air, they seem so vital to the culture. When they go away, they are remembered very little. Peter Jennings died 10 years ago this summer. Ask a young person if they know Peter Jennings. Jennings drew 5 million more viewers a night than Williams does now. But the satirists, the jesters, they seem to have more staying power. Will Rogers, Mark Twain, Aristophanes, and now Jon Stewart. None of them really claimed to tell the truth, but of course, they all did. 
And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi guessed that the only time when drinking is allowed on the floor of the Fijian parliament is when they beat the Tuvaluans at soccer. Joel Meyer guessed that other than passing a budget, the only duties of the Austrian upper house concern urinating, defecating, and scratching, rubbing, and biting trees. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast, guessed that in the Assemblée de Republica, the Portuguese were allowed to drink port, but not allowed to consume geese. You can go to iTunes to subscribe to the show. We are on Yo, specifically the podcast subset of Yo. We're on Facebook.com slash SlateGist. Hey, I just put a picture of Fijian flag up there. So down to two choices. I said the Irish could only drink in the Dalaran, not the Shanadaran. I knew I was wrong, but I was just so damn proud of my knowledge of Irish parliamentary democracy. Thanks for listening. On this week's episode of Mom and Dad Are Fighting, we'll talk to Seth Manukin about how to deal with the vaccine resistors in your life. Plus, we'll share your amazing ideas for how to get through yet another snow day. Please search for Mom and Dad Are Fighting on iTunes or visit slate.com slash podcast.